0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
0: When Tom Kalinske first laid eyes on the little blue hedgehog that was supposed to become the new face of his company, he couldn't believe what he saw. The hedgehog named Mr. Needlemouse looked more like a bizarre animal villain with large fang spike collar and an electric guitar. Plus, he had a sexy human girlfriend named Madonna. There was no way this weird little creature was going to work. As the new head of Sega America, Kalinske had his team redesign the character and christened him Sonic the Hedgehog, one of the most iconic video game characters in history. It was the first of many moves by Sega that would help launch the fledgling video game company into an epic battle with Nintendo, as both companies looked to own the video game market in North America. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we're looking back at the days when Sonic went head-to-head with Mario during the Nintendo vs. Sega console war. If you were a kid in the early 80s who was into video games, you most likely had to go to an arcade where you fought for supremacy at the top of the leaderboard over greasy joysticks and sticky buttons, playing games like Miss Pac-Man or Pole Position. Machines were fought over, quarters were slammed as you called next so you could get your turn and just maybe enter your initials at the end of the game. If you were really lucky, you got to play at home And instead of Space Invaders, you might have been playing Burger Time on your Intellivision. Or maybe Donkey Kong on your ColecoVision. Or better yet, maybe you had an Atari with its super cool and seemingly high-tech joystick. Atari pretty much ruled the video game console market back then. But there were lots of others trying to cash in on the new fad of at-home video games. As a result, soon there was a flood of games on the market. And a lot of them just weren't that good which, according to author and director Blake Harris, was a big problem for shoppers in the pre-internet era.
1: I remember very vividly one time being at the mall and going to a KB Toys, because back then video games were sold almost primarily in toy stores. And my parents, for the first time that I ever remember, they were going to buy my brother and I a game, uh, not for any holiday or birthday, which is how we always would get games, if at all and they said we could pick a game, and our entire criteria for selecting the game was just the back of the box. You know, we didn't, there was no way to, to Google, like, oh, is Cubert good? Um, and so when you're making your decisions based on, you know, three screenshots and a, and a cover art, um, it makes sense that you get burned or that you'd start to be very uh, nervous about spending a significant amount of money. You know, 50 bucks, a lot of money, and it was even more money back then.
0: Eventually, those bad games really put off consumers, who stopped forking over cash for new ones at the risk of getting a dud, which caused the entire industry to crash in 1983. Blake Harris says a certain extraterrestrial game released by Atari is often tied to that moment.
1: The personification of this crash is the uh, ET cartridge produced by Atari, you know, based on the popular movie, As we see, even still to this day, there's always an effort to capitalize on big franchises and other mediums. And Atari wanted to capitalize on the success of E.T. And they were so eager to capitalize on that success that they rushed this game and made it in uh, literally less than six weeks. And it showed. Yeah, and it showed. And so it it was reported that Atari produced more games than even consoles that existed, which is just another uh, example of mismanagement. And, And millions of these games went unsold and many of them were buried in a landfill in New Mexico. So uh, people see that uh, landfill as sort of the uh, personification or the metaphor for the death of the game industry.
0: But while the video game market seemed dead in North America, it was still thriving across the Pacific in Japan. One company in particular was making huge strides and would soon develop a new console that would change everything. Founded in 1889, Nintendo began as a small shop in the heart of Kyoto that made and sold playing cards, which, by the way, had been illegal in Japan up until five years earlier. The little store, which was set up by 29-year-old Fusajiro Yamauchi, grew into a booming business, which, among other things, supplied Nintendo playing cards to other shops around the nation. Eventually, Yamauchi's grandson Hiroshi took over the company and with a keen business eye, decided to shift Nintendo's attention to making video games, beginning in 1973. Nintendo first focused on arcade games and developed Donkey Kong, featuring a banana-loving ape and a little guy named Mario. Then in 1983, Nintendo Japan introduced something called the Famicom, which was short for Family Computer. And it wasn't really a computer. It was an 8-bit video game console, After successful sales in Japan, Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi was eager to get the Famicom into the North American market. But his son-in-law, Minoru Arakawa, who ran Nintendo America, wanted to wait a little longer, giving retailers and others burned by the 1983 video game crash a little more time to recover. Finally, two years later, in 1985, Nintendo of America gave the Famicom a makeover changed the console colors from red and white to gray, and introduced it as the Nintendo Entertainment System. It wasn't just a console like the hardware of the late 70s and early 80s. It was a system designed to entertain kids like never before. But that said, according to Blake Harris, it wasn't an easy sell for Nintendo's U.S. sales reps.
1: Who would be going literally door to door... Um, to places like Crazy Eddie and the Wiz which were electronic retail stores here in New York and they would show off these really great games that were so much superior than you know what you had seen on Atari on a television and the retailers just had no interest in video games it didn't matter how cool this thing was and and there's actually a very good chance that that never would have succeeded um, except for the fact that Nintendo tried to to position what they were selling as if it wasn't a video game. That's actually why in America it's called the entertainment system. They wanted to say, no, 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 no. this isn't a game console like your Intellivision or your Colecovision. This is an entertainment system.
0: Eventually, enough retailers agreed to take a gamble on Nintendo. And they stopped the NES for the 1985 Christmas season. Nintendo America's VP of marketing and sales, a guy by the name of Peter Mayne, choreographed a rollout of the NES that he likened to the storming of Normandy. As a result, Nintendo was able to sell 50,000 NES consoles during the first Christmas season in 1985, which were pretty impressive numbers. But more importantly, Nintendo had proved to the world that the video game industry hadn't used up all of its lives just yet. Over the next couple of years, Nintendo continued to power up. They grew and grew like Mario after eating a super mushroom. They sold millions of consoles and games to North American kids, who became obsessed with games like Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda. In return, Nintendo responded by taking steps to ensure that customers had the best user experience possible. There was a toll-free telephone number that customers could call to talk to Nintendo game counselors, who were available to help players get through difficult levels at any time of the day. And there was the Nintendo Fun Club, which sent a free newsletter to any customer who mailed in a warranty card. After the fun club grew to nearly three and a half million members, Nintendo launched a subscription-based magazine
1: called Nintendo Power. Literally one in three homes in America by 1989 had a Nintendo entertainment system, which is amazing. Like, think about today. What do one in three homes have in common? So Nintendo was so dominant. And uh, by the end of the 80s, Nintendo had 90 to 95% of this market and, and the rest was just being shared by these companies like Sega who were just fighting to survive and to sh- even break even.
0: The NES was a great console, but more importantly, it had great games to back it up. Nintendo's VP of Marketing and Sales, Peter Main, coined a phrase that would become the company's unofficial motto. The name of the game is the game. At the end of the day, it was the software that drove the sales of the hardware. So, ensuring that Nintendo only released the best games possible was a critical part of the company's mission. Unlike the first era of home video games, Nintendo was determined to stay focused on quality over quantity. To achieve their mission, Nintendo took a number of steps to safeguard the quality of their games some of which became pretty controversial with software developers and retailers. First of all, the company mandated that any games designed by outside software developers needed to pass a series of incredibly stringent tests before they were given the Nintendo seal of quality. The company's relationship with third-party developers was fraught at best, and it wasn't just the hoops they made them jump through to get a game approved. It was the strict licensing agreement developers had to sign on to if they wanted to make a game for the NES. The agreement stated that developers could only make a maximum of five games per year for the NES to keep up quality control. Plus, they had to give Nintendo exclusive rights to the games. And it wasn't just developers who had a tough time with Nintendo's strong-handed tactics. Retailers also had complaints.
1: I talked with people who would get uh, vague threats from Nintendo where if they didn't follow Nintendo's orders and put their merchandise in a certain way or charge this exact amount, then hey, you know, maybe the next shipment uh, things might fall off the truck and not make it to you. And as Nintendo became a bigger and bigger part of places of these retailers' businesses, they felt more indebted or obliged to follow Nintendo's orders.
0: In 1991, Attorneys General from all 50 states brought a price-fixing case against Nintendo. It centered around accusations that the company prevented retailers from selling the NES for less than $99 during a six-month period in 1990. The video game company avoided a messy legal proceeding by agreeing to pay back $25 million to their customers. Ads ran in newspapers telling Nintendo console owners, that if they bought an NES between June 1st, 1988 and December 31st, 1990, they were entitled to a $5 coupon, which, incidentally, customers would only be able to use by spending at least $50 on another Nintendo product. It was a pretty brilliant move on Nintendo's part. But the whole thing tainted Nintendo's image. Blake Harris says they were often portrayed as a bully or a villain.
1: But like all good stories, you know, the villain sees themselves as the hero and Nintendo believed that they were doing what was best for the industry in the face of the crash and that without these quality control standards and without them being so meticulous about um, pricing and placement that the industry would have eaten itself alive again. So from their perspective, they thought that they were just rescuing. Yeah, they thought they were rescuing the industry and doing what needed to be done and My personal take is that, you know, like most things, there's truth to both sides, but what really for Nintendo was their terrible bedside manner.
0: Then came the game that allowed Nintendo to level up even more. When Super Mario Bros. 3 was introduced in February, 1990, it certainly fulfilled Nintendo's criteria for high quality games only. With its large map and contrasting colors, the newest adventures of the mustachioed Italian plumber defied what many thought was even possible on the 8-bit NES. As a result, Super Mario 3 was a massive hit, selling more than 8 million copies in 1990. It also helped that Nintendo scored an important coup with McDonald's. Not only did the restaurant chain make Mario-themed Happy Meals that year, it also produced a series of McDonald's commercials, that centered around the game.
1: It's Mario! Look, Ronald, Mario's mystery block makes him big! And my magic box makes us lunch!
0: (laughs) Meanwhile in Japan, another video game company had their eyes on Mario. And they weren't only coming for Princess Peach. They wanted a piece of the American pie. did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sega had also survived the 1983 crash and had been doing pretty well the Japanese company was ready to jump back in and try to get its share of the video game market away from Nintendo. In order to do this, Sega America hired Tom Kalinske, a brilliant businessman who had already left his mark as CEO at several high-profile companies. You may not know who Tom Kalinske is, but Blake Harris says if you are of a certain generation, you should.
1: This is the man who, other than my parents, is probably most responsible for my childhood. And not just with Sega, but, you know, uh, prior to his joining Sega in 1990, uh, you know, years earlier, he had helped uh, develop from a marketing, you know, for a marketing purpose, the the Flintstones Chewable Vitamins. And then he went to Mattel and he helped revive the Barbie line. And then he wanted to do for boys what Barbie did for girls. And he helped create He-Man Masters of the Universe. And so he's this guy who's, uh, you know, almost like Forrest Gump-like, was at all these uh, great cultural, pop cultural toy events and, and not by coincidence like Forrest Gump, but because he just has sort of had this magic touch and he would bring that magic touch to this faltering company, Sega.
0: When Kalinske joined Sega in 1990, the company had already launched their 16-bit console, the Sega Genesis, in an effort to capture some of the home video game market. But things weren't going very well. Sega had sold only about 350,000 Genesis units in 1989 which was far below their goal of one million. And just as important, Sega didn't really have an identity. Then Kalinske came up with this idea. Why bother going after kids, which was Nintendo's market base? Instead, he decided they should go after teens and other hardcore gamers. Sega would be positioned as more than just a toy. Under Kalinsky's command, Sega launched cool ad campaigns aimed at older gamers with the tagline, Sega does what Nintendon't. And along with that, of course, there was the famous Sega scream. Kalinsky also quickly concluded that Sega absolutely needed a mascot that could compete with Nintendo's popular Mario. Sega Japan had begun working on a mascot before Kalinsky joined the company, And after an internal mascot contest, they had settled on a little blue hedgehog with red shoes called Mr. Needlemouse. Kalinske wanted the mascot to appeal to older teens and be a little bit edgy. But he thought Mr. Needlemouse looked more like a serial killer and wouldn't really fly in North America. After an epic battle with Sega of Japan, Kalinske convinced them to soften the mascot's look and change his official name to Sonic the Hedgehog. Blake Harris writes in his book, The Console Wars, that Sonic would become not just the face of the company, but would also represent their spirit, a tiny underdog that moved with manic speed. While Sega's Japanese developers got to work on the Sonic game, Kalinske was hard at work coming up with ideas on how the company could break through in the North American market. One of the biggest problems they faced was getting shelf space at Walmart, Placement there would make or break their chance at success. When Sega sales reps weren't getting anywhere with the massive retailer, Kalinsky came up with an idea that was nothing short of brilliant. He invented Segaville in Bentonville, Arkansas, just down the street from Walmart's national headquarters. It was essentially an arcade of Sega games, where kids and adults were invited to come in and play for free on the 16-bit Genesis system and really get a feel for what it offered. Sega also bought up billboards around the town and handed out Genesis seat cushions at University of Arkansas Games. Everywhere Walmart executives looked, they saw the Sega name. The pressure worked. Walmart finally relented, and gave Sega shelf space for its Genesis consoles and games. When Sega's game Sonic the Hedgehog finally hit stores beginning in June 1991, the adorable blue hedgehog with lots of attitude was an instant phenomenon. Blake Harris writes in his book, *Console Wars, that Sonic seemed to embody the promise of the 90s, capturing Kurt Cobain's whatever attitude, Michael Jordan's graceful arrogance, and Bill Clinton's get-it-done attitude. And did I mention his speed? Sonic was a Formula One car, while Mario was an old go-kart. Sonic Mania swept the nation, and a critical decision by Sega to include Sonic with the Genesis system meant that consoles started flying off the shelves. And to make it even more enticing, Sega dropped the price of the Genesis console to $149. Sales went through the roof. 500,000 consoles were sold in the summer of 1991 alone. Sega of America had finally made it to the next level. But Nintendo wasn't going anywhere. They also had something big up their sleeve. The same summer that Sega released Sonic and lowered the price of the Genesis, video game-loving kids got their first peek at the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo's new 16-bit console came with a $25 million ad campaign. Promising a system with more power than ever before.
1: Super Mario World is here. It's one of the new generation of Nintendo games. It comes only with Super Nintendo and it's like nothing.
0: You've ever faced. Now you're playing with power. Superpower. But Super Nintendo, which came bundled with Super Mario World, had a higher price tag. $199. $50 more than the Sega Genesis. Plus, parents were furious that games from the original NES weren't compatible with the Super Nintendo, which was a bad look for the company that claimed to be concerned with ensuring the best possible user experience. Just like that, it was on. Both companies engaged in massive marketing campaigns. It was all-out war, Nintendo versus Sega, making headlines in newspapers around the nation. Sega launched what it called a video face-off, something that was similar to the Pepsi Challenge of the 1970s. The Sega World Tour 91 visited 25 shopping malls from New York to LA and gave people a chance to compare Sonic the Hedgehog to Super Mario World. After the first week of the tour, Tom Kalinske declared that 88% of users liked Sonic better. By Christmas 1991, Sega had become a serious competitor for Nintendo, which just a year earlier had owned 90 to 95% of the market. Sega had muscled its way in to capture 25% of the home video game market in a year. Now, let's be clear Nintendo was still winning the video game war by far, but for the first time, there was a legitimate shift in the marketplace. Sega was gaining momentum. And that momentum was about to power up with the introduction of a controversial new fighting game that would go on to become one of the most popular video games of the decade. In 1993, Sega and Nintendo released Mortal Kombat. The hugely popular game had been introduced in arcades the year before it allowed combatants to rip the heart out of a vanquished foe or tear the head off a fallen opponent and hold the appendage up as a trophy. Players were encouraged to do their gory finishing moves with the infamous message, Finish Him, that would repeatedly flash on the screen when a bout was close to over. him. Okay, oh! wins. Flawless victory. For the first time, Mortal Kombat would be available for home consoles, and both Sega and Nintendo would be releasing the title. But Sega made a decision that would allow them to outsell Nintendo 5 to 1. Sega released the original version of Mortal Kombat with all the blood and guts included. Nintendo, on the other hand, released a censored version that, among other things, changed the red blood that squirted out of injured combatants to green goo. Nintendo America's senior vice president, Howard Lincoln, told Blake Harris that he expected parents would be thrilled with the censorship. But on the contrary, he says they received letters and complaints from parents and others for censoring the game. But as you can imagine, not everyone was happy with Sega's uncensored version of Mortal Kombat. In December 1993, U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman, gathered the Washington press court to expose what he felt was the corrupting influence of video games on young minds. One of Lieberman's aides had shown him Mortal Kombat after his son had asked if he could buy it. At the news conference, Lieberman showed reporters several games, including Mortal Kombat and Night Trap, saying no parent would buy the games for their kids if they knew how violent they were. Lieberman declared that a game age rating system was needed to protect young players from games that he said glorified violence and taught children to enjoy inflicting the most gruesome forms of cruelty imaginable. One week after Lieberman's news conference, the senator chaired a subcommittee on violent video games. Here he is describing Sega's version of Mortal Kombat to committee members. In the first segment, which is Sega's version, blood splatters from the contestants' heads. When a player wins, the so-called death sequence begins. The game narrator instructs the player to finish, and I quote, finish his opponent. The player may then choose a method of murder, ranging from ripping a heart out to pulling off the head of the opponent with spinal cord attached. Lieberman insisted that the industry must introduce a system of self-regulation if it wanted to avoid state regulation. And it worked. Five months later, the games industry established the pioneering Entertainment Software Rating Board, and one of its first acts was to assign Mortal Kombat a mature rating, meaning it was illegal for minors to purchase it. Notwithstanding Joe Lieberman's dislike of Sega's version of Mortal Kombat, the decision to release the game uncensored was another notch in the belt for Sega. So the company continued to gain on Nintendo in the race to win the console war. As you can imagine, Nintendo was not prepared
1: to just sit back and let that happen. Here's Blake Harris. In 1994, they launched what they called the Play It Loud uh, marketing campaign, which was uh, Nintendo basically trying to make Sega-like commercials. And when they announced this at uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show, which preceded E3... Um, they 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 brought out a band who was going to like represent this, you know, to get everyone amped up. And they brought out Butthole Surfers, um, and and it's like you know just Nintendo being involved with Butthole Surfers it's a very it's something they not they would never have done had they not been with Sega.
0: The ten million dollar Play It Loud campaign was hailed as the first time that Nintendo focused more on corporate image rather than selling video consoles and cartridges. The TV and print ads which targeted 15 to 16-year-olds included lots of burping, screaming, and directions to hawk-a-loogie at life. We want to be free. We want to do what we want to do. We want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Then Nintendo made another bold move. It dropped the price of the Super Nintendo from $199 to $149. Sega followed suit, dropping its console price 30 bucks from $149 to $129. It was a dizzying back-and-forth battle.
1: You know, Nintendo will drop the price, and Sega will drop it even further, and then Nintendo will drop it even further, and then Sega's got a popular basketball game, so Nintendo has to get a popular basketball game, which makes Sega get a popular football game, and on and on it went. And by the way, the true winner in all of this is, is me, is us, it's the consumer, because we're getting games that are cheaper and a bigger variety of games.
0: While Sega and Nintendo were busy duking it out, there was a new contender on the sideline, getting ready to join the console war. And you may not know, early on, Nintendo had a chance to pair up with this other opponent, but decided not to. Back in 1991, Sony announced it was going into business with Nintendo to develop the Nintendo PlayStation which would use Sony's technology to move games from cartridges to CDs. Sony officials told the crowd at the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago that they'd been working with Nintendo since 1989 to create a version of the Super NES with a CD drive attachment. But the very next day, Nintendo dropped a bomb at the same trade show. They announced the deal with Sony was off. Instead, Nintendo would be moving forward with Philips Electronics to develop a CD-ROM drive that hooked up to the Super Nintendo to play games on CDs. Behind the scenes, Nintendo was worried that Sony had plans to muscle in on the video game market. They wanted to stop them from getting a foot in the door. As you can imagine, this was a huge embarrassment for Sony and set the stage for a future battle between the two companies, one that continues to be fought to this day. While Sony went off to develop the PlayStation on its own, the battle between Sega and Nintendo continued. With its competitors moving into 32-bit technology, Nintendo needed something to rejuvenate its 16-bit Super NES until it unveiled its planned 64-bit system in 1995. And they found it in Donkey Kong Country, a gorgeous game that played as well as it looked. The goal of the game was to help Donkey Kong and his little buddy, Diddy Kong, travel through dozens of levels where they hook up with assorted animal friends to recover their stolen banana stash. But the star of the show were the lush, vivid 3D graphics. They were the result of a a three-and-a-half-year collaboration between Nintendo, Rare Limited from the UK, Alias Research from Toronto, and Silicon Graphics from California. The same super powerful computers that brought the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to life were used to create the characters and some of the backgrounds in Donkey Kong Country. And the result was a realistic 3D look that took Nintendo games to the next level. One media report from the time said the graphics from Donkey Kong Country made Mario look like a paint-by-number picture. The game sold more than 500,000 units in its first week alone making it, at the time, Nintendo's best-selling game ever. Meanwhile, back at Sega, Tom Kalinske was not happy with the success of the new 3D game, but not for the reasons you would think. Kalinske reveals in Blake Harris's Console Wars that Silicon Graphics actually approached him first, but Sega Japan turned down the offer. He thinks Sega Japan may have been purposely trying to undermine their American counterparts, tired of playing second fiddle. Despite the thriving video game industry, heading into the mid-90s, there were actually predictions of a crash in the console industry. That's because more and more homes were getting powerful multimedia computers that allowed gamers to play their favorite games on their PC. There was a real belief at the time that consoles were on the verge of becoming obsolete. But new technology from Sega and a new competitor would close the door on that possibility. In May 1995, Sega and Sony both unveiled the next generation of gaming at the Electronic Entertainment Expo in Los Angeles. For the first time, the 16-bit Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation would use a CD-ROM. That meant no more cartridges. Games would be stored on discs identical to music CDs. That combined with the bigger 16-bit microprocessor meant that the Saturn and the PlayStation games would offer faster action and more realistic graphics. Sega was the first to grab headlines at the 1995 E3 when Tom Kalinske surprised industry insiders by announcing that the Saturn would debut in the US immediately instead of the fall. The new 32-bit console would be priced at $399 and come packed with a 3D fighting game Virtua Fighter but because it was pushed out early, initially the Saturn had a shortage of games. Sony, on the other hand, waited until the fall of 1995 to unveil its PlayStation. And even though it didn't come packed with a game, Sony offered twice as many games as Sega, including Mortal Kombat 3. Up until then, Sony was better known for TVs, CD players, and stereos, but they were finally making a move into the ferociously combative video game business and the gloves were off. Within a year, they had sold almost 2 million units in the United States, and over 7 million worldwide. As for Nintendo, they took a gamble. They decided to skip right over the 32-bit system and go straight to a 64-bit console. In September 1996, almost a full year after the PlayStation and Sega Saturn were released, Nintendo, together with Silicon Graphics, unveiled the Nintendo 64 with a new multimedia engine chipset. The Nintendo 64, priced at $199, allowed up to four controllers for multiplayer capabilities, and its new controller featured a joystick, which made it easier to move in 3D games like Super Mario 64 and Pilotwings 64 the console also gave players a game that left an enduring impression in video game culture, GoldenEye 007. The first-person shooter game pioneered features such as atmospheric single-player missions, stealth elements, and a console multiplayer deathmatch mode. The game is frequently cited as one of the greatest video games of all time. The Nintendo 64 didn't use CDs, though, opting instead to stick with cartridges, which were faster to load. That Christmas of 1996, it was no longer a two-game battle. With all three consoles now selling for the same price at $199, it was Nintendo versus Sega versus Sony. But it wouldn't be long before one competitor became the clear winner and another competitor threw in the towel. The Sony PlayStation came out as the clear winner partly because of its large variety of game titles. It became the first console to sell 100 million units. The Sega Saturn, on the other hand, sold only 10 million. By 1999, Sega was in its last throes of the battle. Tom Kalinske had left the company, and the company's latest console, the Dreamcast, was a total bust. Even though it was revered by Sega's loyal fan base as being ahead of its time, the Dreamcast sold even less than the Saturn, Sega stopped producing consoles on March 1st, 2001, and today it's strictly a third-party game developer. Blake Harris says that Sega definitely made some missteps along the way, but their biggest mistake was turning down earlier opportunities to pair up with Sony and Silicon Graphics.
1: As Sega was exploring their new console, which would inevitably be the Sega Saturn, um, Sega of America didn't really like the Sega Saturn which was a Japanese uh, R&D product and initially they wanted to partner with Sony and produce what would have been something very similar to the Sega Sony PlayStation. Um, Then they also considered partnering with Silicon Graphics who had a new uh, chip that could be used for gaming and Sega at the behest of Sega in Japan ended up passing on that and You know, who didn't pass on that was Nintendo, and that ended up becoming the Nintendo 64. So in this very sad, poetic way, Sega had the opportunity to partner with the two technology makers that created the consoles that destroyed them.
0: Obviously, the end of the 90s console war didn't mean the end of all console wars. Today, the home video game industry out-earns the film and the music industry combined. While Sony PlayStation went head-to-head with Microsoft's similar Xbox system at the beginning of the 21st century, Nintendo was crushing it again with the Wii, which sold well over 100 million units. It kept the company that started off selling playing cards from getting dealt out of the console industry. Thanks for joining me at this look back at the console Wars of the 90s. And thanks to my special guest, Blake Harris. He is the author of the fabulous book, Console Wars, and director of a documentary by the same name. His work was a huge help in writing this episode. I will put Blake's contact information and more about the book and documentary in the show notes. So check that out if you're interested in learning more. Make sure you subscribe to History of the 90s as well so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, it doesn't hurt to rate and review us. Several great listeners suggested this topic, including John, Rob, and Mark. Thanks to them and everyone for sending in all of your great ideas. If you have a suggestion, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.